The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. I'm Zoe Weinberg, and this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by John Lechner. John is a writer and researcher and is currently working on a book about the Wagner Group, which is coming out in 2024. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. John, we'd like to start with the topic that's really top of mind uh, for many people and is the subject of your forthcoming book. There's been a ton of press a- around the Wagner Group and uh, and what will become of it in the wake of the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin. But for folks who may not have been following it so closely, let's start from the beginning. What exactly is the Wagner Group? What's their presence worldwide? Like, Take us through some of the background here. Sure. Um, you know, I, I guess at first we can start with what is a uh, Wagner group. And e- even when it comes to the group's history, I think there's a lot of very smart people who have a lot of different arguments about what exactly Wagner group is, uh, what its origins were, which are still sort of clouded in, in mystery uh, in, in kind of the very chaotic environment of the beginning of the war in 2014 in eastern Ukraine and Donbass. Uh, and, and then, of course, you have the history and the trajectory of Yevgeny, Yevgeny Prigozhin himself, who, who certainly loomed as a larger-than-life figure uh, within Russian politics and, and in the media more generally. So uh, perhaps I think we can start with uh, Prigozhin, who, who was uh, kind of famously a a very interesting individual. He he early on in his life he he went away to prison uh, in, in the uh, early eighties, if I remember correctly, uh, around eighteen uh, as a petty thief. Uh, this was obviously still the Soviet Union at the time, and he, he spent about uh, eight or nine years in in Soviet prison before uh, coming out. And in the chaos of the early nineties, he he became a hot dog salesman uh, in St. Petersburg, and uh, he and his mom would mix the mustard in in the apartment and and go out and he would sell uh, hot dogs and apparently was fairly successful at it because he managed to rise up and and, and leverage that into a career first in in the restaurant business. And he opened up uh, two very successful high-end restaurants where a lot of the St. Petersburg elite uh, would go. One of them uh, was on a was on a riverboat and, and was particularly well liked by Vladimir Putin and and a bunch of other guys uh, in the late nineties, early two thousands, and, and he managed to leverage uh, those relationships into the very lucrative world of government contracting, and so he became uh, his company Concord Management became the contractor for uh, for food for meals for for both uh, Russia's schools and. Uh, the military. And uh, for a long time, he was probably most famous for uh, poisoning Russian soldiers and school children with his with his food. Uh, and then was this accidentally or intentionally? I mean, I don't think I, he wasn't going around with poison, but I think the food was bad enough and the quality oftentimes was bad enough that people wound up getting poisoned. Yeah, we shouldn't over exoticized and he's already an exotic figure enough but he wasn't I, I don't think he maybe he was but i don't think he was you know really out there 
trying to, but we were just not fans of his food back then. <laughs> we were not fans of his food. Uh, he probably, yeah, wasn't instituting the highest quality standards to say the least. And he should have um, stuck to hot dogs. He should have stuck to hot dogs. Well, he, I mean, it was. I think, and this comes into to factor later on is, um in terms of the origins and what the relationship with with the state was i mean i think it i think it's safe to assume that uh, there were a lot of kickbacks going on and a lot of rents uh, available in, in the world of contracting um and and ultimately he was probably keeping his costs as low as humanly possible um not necessarily unlike government contractors in other countries as well um, but I think the, the, the freedom that he had in, in Russia at that specific time allowed for him probably to make a, a good amount of money off of those contracts and, and, and pass that money along, uh, to other folks, uh, in government and within the patronage network. And, um, uh, and, and so, uh, starting around, uh, 2014, uh, you obviously had the, the Maidan movement, uh, in Ukraine, the overthrow uh of the government of uh that that was kind of leaning more uh pro-russian at the time and, and we saw initially uh kind of anti-maidan protests uh pop up in the east of ukraine uh very quickly we saw um uh volunteers uh people with various relationships with with the russian government pop up and, and start offering support and what kind of ultimately turned into uh, a war, and there were a lot of uh, a lot of different guys from, I guess, what we would call the ultra patriotic community, the Russian nationalist community, who who were going down there and volunteering and, and fighting uh, on the side of uh, these militias that had popped up, and kind of without uh, their help. Uh, I think, you know, fairly quickly, Ukraine would have been able to probably retake that territory. Uh, and one of the one of the groups that was over there was, was a group that was led by a guy, uh, Dmitry Utkin, uh, who was former special forces in, in military intelligence, um, had had served in Chechnya and and, uh, and had joined in 2013 a, a private security contracting group uh, called Moran and then Slavonic Corps and he went out to Syria. The mission turned out to go incredibly poorly. They thought that they were going to uh, guard uh, kind of facilities. They wound up fighting ISIS and and it didn't go well. And they went back to Russia and the leaders got arrested by the FSB. Uh, Utkin didn't, but then a few months later, he he pops up with uh, a group uh, of probably about fifty guys or so uh, who were all of a sudden fighting uh, in Donbas. And it's around this time uh, that we think Prigozhin was also there. Uh, perhaps, like a lot of other people, he recognized a good opportunity to make money uh, off of drawing in the government into, into these activities, and and at some point. Uh, they teamed up together with different folks within kind of the se security infrastructure to form what became a, a PMC that was named after Dmitry Utkin's uh, call sign, which was Wagner. And, and Utkin uh, is, I think, in any sense, uh, probably a, a neo-Nazi. He was a big fan of uh, Wagner, the composer, and chose that as his his call sign, and it came to be the name for the group more generally. And uh, following Eastern Ukraine, uh, this group kind of came, uh, sort of a, a PMC like entity, private military company like entity was, was in Syria, uh, in, in, up through 2017 and early 2018. They actually started, they actually attacked, uh, a position where U.S. special forces, uh, were embedded in the U.S. military, uh, dropped millions of dollars worth of equipment on a contingent of Wagner uh, fighters, probably killing up to 300 or so. Uh, Prigozhin by this point had become uh, infamous as well in the U.S. for operating the uh, Internet, uh, Internet Research Agency, the Troll Farm, uh, and, and was accused and 
uh, came out in, in, in various reports by the U.S. justice system that, that he was involved in, in attempts to interfere or meddle in U.S. presidential elections. Um, and then uh, around uh, late 2017, 2018, Wagner starts popping up uh, in different countries in Africa, uh, in Sudan and then the Central African Republic. Uh, a little bit later on, they're in Libya, where they're fighting on uh, behalf of uh, the ruler of eastern Libya, General Haftar. Uh, they, they pop up uh, in, in, in Mali, and then uh, in, in 2021, and then uh, ultimately uh, with Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, they, they really kind of make uh, the, the headlines internationally, and Prigozhin really becomes uh, very famous as as the face of uh, Russia's uh, war in Ukraine. They uh, he he began uh, recruiting from all of Russia's prisons thousands of convicts, perhaps fifty thousand, to fight on the front line as just kind of waves of what they call in Russian meat. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, take uh, took Bakhmut before Prigozhin's rivalries within the Ministry of Defense kind of boiled over, and and, and he led. Uh, a sort of half-hearted mutiny against his rivals that ultimately resulted in his his demise a few months later in a in a plane crash. John, that's such a fascinating buildup, and thank you for providing that context, especially for those of us that haven't necessarily been able to engage with the story. And something that I've read is you called uh, Wagner a social phenomenon. Um, can you explain what that means? I think you're just about, you know, touching on that in your last comment. Sure. I'm. I, I, as I think I, I was saying, kind of at, at the very beginning, there's a lot of arguments going in different ways about what exactly Wagner is, and it's been very confusing, I think, to folks because. Uh, uh, it, it would describe itself as a private military company, which I think for a lot of people brings up uh, images of, of Blackwater, U.S. versions, or, or the South African version, executive outcomes. But but ultimately, it, it's very the, the whole private security space is incredibly complex. The relate the even even private military companies can all be very different. Blackwater itself was very different from. Uh, executive outcomes. Blackwater was, in essence, also a major contracting firm that provided security, like more like guard duty, not offensive military operations, um, and, and, and tried as as much as possible to really embed itself within the national security infrastructure of one powerful country, which was the United States. Um, executive outcomes, which was was much smaller, was born out of a post-apartheid government where a lot of white South African guys with military experience could no longer, no longer had a place, let's say, in, in post-apartheid South Africa, they couldn't contract with their home government. And so they went out and they marketed their services to other African governments as both trainers, but also they, they could participate essentially as fighters in, in, in military operations themselves. Um, Wagner has come out, and, and I think what what we were trying to describe, uh, especially in that article, is that Wagner has come out of a unique moment uh, within Russia, uh, but also internationally as well. In that they, because of the nature of Putin's uh, Vladimir Putin's system of governance, whereby you see that uh, a lot of powerful oligarchs have a disproportionate amount of power over foreign policy and a lot of freedom to kind of pursue projects as they see fit. Wagner has this very interesting and fluid relationship with the Russian government, which is itself, I mean, not to over-exoticize it because, you know, we can, there's a lot of things that are similar in DC as well, but it, it is kind of the Kremlin is an amalgamation of uh, various competing powerful interest groups that are often at cross purposes, sometimes, you know, often working together, but, you know, as essentially individuals who are working to frame their, their profit making activities as, as kind of fulfilling the, the interests of the state or, or the state's security interests. And so uh, Wagner 
was was able to both embed itself within Russia's national security infrastructure like Blackwater, but at the same time go out and, and search for new contracts, new business opportunities um, in, in places like the Central African Republic, like executive outcomes. And, and, and the fact that you don't have um, a... The, the thing that really kept other private military companies like Blackwater in check is not this overarching sense of, you know, we want to be transparent for the people or, you know, for, for the system. It's really the fact that the U.S. has a viable uh, opposition party, usually, that's willing to drag a, a PMC you know, to a congressional hearing to try and make, not necessarily because they don't like Blackwater, but they want to make whoever's in power look bad. You, you don't really have that, uh, obviously, in Russia. And, and, and so there's a lot more freedom. There's a lot less accountability that that allows uh, an entity like Wagner to really go out and, and, and pursue all different types of opportunities without really having to answer to the public. Um, at the same time, uh, it, you know, it's unique to Russia. It came out of a unique moment within the privatization of warfare in general, where we see an overarching trend that, that very much began in the United States, uh, following the war on terror to, to privatize all aspects of, of government. And, and the Bush administration definitely put that into overdrive, uh, such that I think it was by 2010, for every soldier on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was one contractor. Um, and, and so the reality is, is that the U.S. could not have prosecuted the war on terror as it wanted to uh, without contractors, because to, to, to have to use just military personnel would have required a national draft. Um, and so at, at the same time, the, the same types of opportunities and constraints that existed for the U.S. that that saw the benefit in contractors exist for Russia as well. You don't have to have the buy-in uh, of the public that a draft w- would entail. You're you're able to pursue foreign policies at a much lower political cost because you don't have to report contractor casualties. You know, ultimately, there, there's a lot of kind of uh political risks that 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 become a lot less going going to war uh and and Wagner is very much a product of that at a time as well in places in Africa where we we've seen kind of an existential crisis in terms of peacekeeping activity the, the we we don't see any you know for a lot of folks uh in these countries they've seen 20 years of peacekeeping and only more armed groups um People are looking for military solutions. Uh, There's a genuine uh, anti-French movement, pro-sovereignty, looking for what they see as a more equal partnership. Uh, And and so all of these things Wagner has also fallen into uh, in in a way that they've certainly been able to take advantage of uh, the climate. But but, but the climate has also been perfect for an entity uh, like Wagner itself. And... Uh, even beyond that, Prigozhin himself is such a unique, was such a unique character that he, he was able within Russia itself to create this, this brand, um, this, for lack of a better term, cool factor behind, uh, these mercenaries, uh, as sort of, and it taps into, some some other kind of overarching tropes within Russia uh, about uh, what we would call thieves in law uh, and uh, prison culture, you know, not too different from some of the anti-heroes that that we have, you know, in, in Western literature as well. But uh, creating this this uh, this brand or this image of Wagner, these mercenaries, as essentially you know outside of the outside of society but at the same time society needs them and, and and they are called upon to defend society uh when when it's under attack and so it fits within this overall uh, sentiment that, that has very much been cultivated by Putin that that Russians everywhere are under attack they're under attack in Ukraine and, and Wagner somehow very counterintuitively as as a mercenary organization you know, mercenaries are theoretically just motivated by money, 
but at, at the same time, they're also able to cultivate this image of guys who, who are motivated by money, but not, you know, nationalist sentiment at the same time. I mean, we could have a much longer conversation, I think, about just the privatization of, of militaries around the world, um, which is a totally fascinating and in some ways kind of troubling phenomenon, as you say. Um, you know, one question that's been on my mind, and, I, you know, maybe it's almost like too silly of a question to, to really be asked, but like after the failed confrontation with Putin, was there any world in which Prigozhin really was going to be able to like li- continue to live freely in Russia? Like, what? Like, why didn't he leave? Maybe it didn't matter. Even if he did leave, he, you know, like Putin would have found him anyway. Like, I just, but I, I found it kind of interesting as an observer that you know ultimately he dies on a flight that's a flight within Russia, right? And so. Yeah, like, what, can you like explain that a little bit? Or I mean, yeah. I know there's a, some degree of speculation that would have to happen in order to answer that question. But yeah, I mean, I think we can say in general, like, ego is a hell of a drug, um, and I honestly, I personally thought that by this time he would he would still be alive and, and around, um, and, and, and that's for a number of factors first what i think what was so interesting about wagner especially in africa was that in a way wagner became the russian state uh and so there's usually this kind of narrative that wagner is the secretive arm of the russian state and so it's used as this means for nefarious spreading of influence and you never the great thing about words like influence and stability is you never have to really describe what influence actually means uh or what you mean by stability it's it's kind of just this vessel in which we can pour whatever you know we 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 interpret that that to be at at the same time i think or 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 much more uh likely is the fact that you know, Wagner was very much a, a product of the Russian state's lack of capacity um, and lack of interest to project power formally with troops in, in places like Africa. Um, and so, you know, we talked about earlier how specifically in Russia, individuals and, and companies have a disproportionate or, or quite quite a bit of uh, leeway and freedom to go off and pursue various projects as long as they're able to you know frame those projects as being within the country's national interests and Wagner was a case in point um Wagner's freedom its ability to really penetrate you know the economy of the Central African Republic was much more a product of the fact that the Russian other Russian security institutions that the Kremlin itself didn't care about the Central African Republic uh, and, and we saw that they had a lot less leeway in places like Syria. And in Ukraine, we saw the product of that, which was Prigozhin was so frustrated uh, that he that he launched a mutiny. What was interesting about it was that over time, Wagner uh, essentially became the Russian state in Africa. They weren't just a, a PMC providing security. They were out there uh, bringing groups together to... Into international peace treaties, um, they they were uh, national advisors. They were they were basically conducting diplomacy, security, and business all at the same time. Uh, and uh, in, in many respects, they they became uh, they they created what Russia's interests in Africa were, and and that that wasn't quite. Uh, as important until after the the full scale invasion of, of Ukraine, when all of a sudden I think it became clear to, to Moscow that you know we want to eschew these narratives of geopolitical isolation. We want to show that you know we're 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 the anti colonial uh, you know anti colonial fighters you know and, and that we represent also the global south and and so all of a sudden wagner's activities in africa took on a much much more discursive 
importance uh, for for the greater the greater narratives. And it seemed like, and and perhaps Prigozhin thought at this time that that he had become uh, too big to fail in, in a sense. And and, and so uh, I think perhaps his, his ego uh, got ahead of him, and, and uh, he he thought that what Putin had promised, which was that you know he would be okay. Uh, perhaps that he would be able to keep his African operations. Uh, perhaps he thought he was he he was actually good. Um, the the other thing that that I was surprised by, and this is not like a compliment to the Putin regime, but it actually usually does take them a while to kill someone. Um, you just have to look at uh, Navalny, for example. Uh, kind of the main true political opponent or or kind of opposition politician in Russia has been a thorn in the side for Putin for like well over a decade. And, you know, I guess to not give credit or to give credit, you know, it took them, you know, that that much time to actually finally decide to poison him and try and kill him. Um the 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 mutiny, the th- these types of facts usually, you know, speak to uh, the fact that the the system that Putin has has built is actually uh, th- there's not a lot of guidance from the center. We have to remember Putin has the same 24 hours that we do, right? We're not he's not he, uh, and, and so there's often not a lot of guidance. You have these competing bureaucracies and individuals, and, and things are actually sclerotic and fairly slow moving, even when it comes to uh assassinating someone uh and so i i think it was actually more surprising that it took a couple of months for it to happen ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I mean, this is just so fascinating, and I really appreciate you touching on the influence of Wagner's presence in Africa. I think that's such a top of mind topic for most people who are looking in foreign policy, just, you know, even with China's infiltration of Africa, it's becoming a bigger and bigger, you know, item that people are focusing on under a magnifying glass as more and more people kind of enter into business relationships, military relationships um, with that, um, with the whole continent. I had a quick question on, you know, your personal spark into Wagner. So you started writing this book long before the spotlight was on this institution. You know, what was your main lead? What was that kind of first input into what led you to writing this book? Yeah, um, I think my my first passion is I, I'm a huge nerd for uh, bizarrely, this is like totally off topic, but languages and linguistics. I love, uh, I love languages, uh, and like the more niche, the, the fewer the speakers, like the better for me. Like it, it's almost unattractive when a language has like too many speakers and like an economic incentive to try and learn it. And so I, I first became interested in Russia because of the Caucasus, um, where there's, you know, probably about a hundred different languages spoken. Um, and, and I, I lived in Russia initially because of that and, and, uh, and, and studied in Russia for a little while. And, and, uh, you know, obviously always had, had a fascination for 
uh, Russian post-Soviet politics. Um, and I had also been spending a lot more time uh, in Africa. And so uh, when uh, Russia first, Russians first started arriving in Central African Republic, I, I, I was over there pretty quickly just because I was fascinated um, more in, in in the fact that I had, you know, these two such interesting places that that were seemingly separate, all of a sudden overlapping together, and that was this opportunity to study uh, what happens. And what I'm most interested in is just what happens when people from different places and, and cultures and histories come together, and and how they cooperate, how they fight, um, how uh, interventions affect you know ecosystems and how the the ecosystem actually kind of changes and affects the, the intervention and and i think that's what i found most interesting about uh wagner arriving in africa and, and the thing that i think gets missed most of the time is actually the way that the, the challenges and the obstacles that they face um you know, the Central African Republic has, has been in conflict for, for a long time. There's a lot of powerful actors on the ground. And, and when these guys show up, uh, they, they run into a lot of challenges. And actually, over time as well, uh, the, the, the ecosystem of, of the Central African Republic affects how they do things. And, and over time, they start to follow the same patterns of governance, the same patterns of conflict, of violence that preexisted their arrival. And I, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised about that because, you know, the U S the greatest superpower, uh, you know, currently, uh, went, went to what was perhaps at the time, the poorest country in the world and wasn't able to do <laughs> and achieve what, what they wanted to achieve. And, and so it shows how much agency, uh, locals have and, and, and the extent to which uh, especially local governments and, and powerful local elite are using Wagner to to their own ends. It's not just Wagner taking advantage of of Africans and, and stealing resources and things along those lines. It's very much Africans also taking advantage of Wagner and using them to to achieve their own political uh, political goals. So you originally became interested in the Wagner Group from the perspective of being on the ground in the Central African Republic. Now, obviously, there's a, a lot of people who are focusing on Wagner and Prigozhin. As you have watched the media coverage of, you know, recent events play out, what has struck you as, you know, something that maybe is most misunderstood by sort of casual observers or, or you know, kind of casual writers um, about about Wagner. Like what it, I, I'm, I'm curious what you've learned from really, you know, sort of seeing it up close on the ground, you know, in yeah. in car. I mean, I think that there there's a few things and there's a few things that like folks are going to have to uh, come to terms with. There, there's so much focus on countering Wagner, uh, I think without really understanding where, where it's coming from and, and necessarily what, what it is, uh, I think, and, and hopefully what will come through in, in the book is, uh, I think Wagner is much better understood as just a network of individuals, people who come through the organization, they go elsewhere, um, varying levels of interaction with the various companies that that, that Wagner represents, but it, it's much more uh, a, a group of individuals and, and the things that happen kind of on the ground at the local level, I think are uh, by far the, the, the most interesting. And one, one of the things that, you know, folks are going to have to come to terms with in a place like the Central African Republic is uh that there there's a there's a tendency to just try to view Wagner in isolation as separate from as we were kind of talking about earlier the the ecosystem in which they they are operating and so much of the decisions that they're making the things that they are doing is is in reaction to events taking place on the ground 
is in reaction to armed groups, what armed groups are doing, uh, what local politicians are doing as well. Um, and uh, in, in order to understand what people think about Wagner, we have to understand the fact that uh, these guys are are, are not the uh, they're not the root cause of conflict in any of these places where they're operating. Mercenaries are kind of, by definition, a, a product of it. And, and, we, and we seem to be so fascinated that they are showing up in, in different places, but they're showing up in places where there's conflict, which is what any PMC should be should be doing. I mean, they, it's a country that's in peace does not make a good client for a private military company. And, and and the way that 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 people judge them on on the ground, uh, it, it is very much a product of I think precarity, and and conflict. And you know, in a lot of places in the Central African Republic, people uh, still think they're they're well aware of human rights abuses and 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 you know behavior that they don't like, but they still think that these guys are better than armed groups, and they want the return of the state. And, and, and they they don't view Wagner in the same way that that folks uh, in, in where I'm sitting in DC view them. And if we don't take those that perspective into consideration, we're completely missing, you know, any ideas of you know on, on how to counter them. And and, and the, the the problem is is that we don't. Um, there is not an appetite anywhere to actually replace Wagner with what these local governments want and, and what people need. The, at the end of the day, what, what, the, these guys are often racist. You know, they're freaking Russian mercenaries. I mean, they're not, okay, they're not coming down with, you know, they're not fresh out of a PhD program in Africa studies in Moscow. You know, these guys are a very specific type uh, and a specific type that exists in all society too there there's a lot that's in, that's common between uh a russian mercenary and a western mercenary for example these are kind of they believe in similar things um but the fact that these guys are out there uh that they often lead from the front that they die uh that they get killed can overcome a lot of the cultural back barriers that that the West is so focused on in terms of in terms of analyzing them, um, and so at, at the end of the day, I think that they're still going to be around because the most important thing is is that you know th this is ultimately a a collection of, of individuals who are from you know a specific. Uh, for lack of a better term, a cast of, of, of society. They are, they are kind of, this is their profession. Uh, I think that the government has recognized, the Russian government has recognized the use of them. They aren't going to want to stop doing what they're doing. They don't want to go back to being a mall cop. Um, they, they like this life. And so, uh, th there's a certain amount of, uh, momentum that that will just allow this to keep going in, in some sort of form which is why it's more of a phenomenon than than anything else kind of specific to to an organization they've created the product now and, and so or they've created the marketplace for the product that they that they have um and and, and so uh the that that kind of guarantees that in some form or another most of these guys are going to still be around yeah, what do you think uh, the Wagner Group looks like post Prigozhin? Or, I mean, assuming it does continue in some form, how how does it look different? I mean, I think a lot of the things that uh, will be different are not going to be visible to us as outsiders. Uh, the same people, like literally the same faces, will. Will, will be around. Um, the relationship between Wagner and, and the Russian Ministry of Defense might change. Um, but those changes would likely be reflected at, uh, you know, at, at a level that wasn't even really visible to us in, in the first place. There, there's a lot of good reason to believe that. Uh, well, let's put it this way. You, you can even find, even if you find, let's say, 
the list of shareholders of Prigozhin's old company, Concord Management. And it says, you know, 25% to this guy, 25% to this guy of, of the profits. That doesn't that doesn't mean that that's where things are actually going. Because at the end of the day, someone can just say, hey, transfer these funds over there to this guy. And that's it. No one knows who the account is or anything along those lines. Um, and so the shift in terms of where the patronage is going, where the money is going, those types of things could change, but they'll change with a handshake, like a nod and a wink. And, and, and it'll take us years, if ever, to find out you know, what, what actually happened. There's a, there's a good chance that Prigozhin himself wasn't the majority shareholder of the company that he was affiliated with. Uh, and so again, it's better to think of these guys as, as a network of individuals and Prigozhin as kind of the representative or the head of a network. And, and some of those shifts, that those can happen and, and, and we won't see any of that on the ground. You know, maybe switching gears a bit, you've chosen primarily to be an independent researcher and freelancer. And I'm just curious, you know, what have the challenges and benefits of pursuing that path been? I love that, you know, as you're talking, everything you've written about is sort of a story that's not your own, but at the same time, you yourself have actually spent time in some of the most challenging corners of the globe you you know you've been on the ground as well so yeah can you talk to us a little bit about you know the main challenges and benefits of pursuing that independent researcher freelancer path yeah no sure i i mean i think you hit some of the points i think um the benefit is that well i mean first you know have to think about what uh, what type of things were out there. And it's not like I was operating in, in an environment where there's all these, you know, positions out there for Wagner analysts. And I'm just like, not, you know, I forgot to apply or something along those lines. Um, but I think it, it came out organically because I, I had worked before this uh, at, in banking, kind of in finance. And I knew ultimately that that wasn't uh what was motivating me and and, and, be, and it, what was interesting to me. And so I moved down to DC, went to, uh, went, went to grad school and then, uh, you know, amidst the pandemic, uh, got a job working for the U S government for a little bit, but it was about, it was on Turkey, um, and, and Azerbaijan, and I kind of had spent this time over in, in Africa, and, and I knew that I ultimately wanted to, to write about this because I thought it, it would be important. And so the only way that I guess I felt that I could do it was to to be independent, and, and that allows me uh, to, uh, I suppose, go to places where I don't have to uh, answer as much for security concerns other than uh with my family who were always ready to kill me but it allows you to go and 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 go to places that you know but it's not like i recommend going you know to rural car you need to like you need to set up a lot of safety precautions as well and you need to find groups that you can that you can embed with i mean it's also just difficult you can't just go by yourself you have to get un flights and things along those lines but you get you have the freedom to kind of travel uh to places that you want to travel with um the the downside is that you don't have the support if something uh goes wrong uh and uh you have the freedom to to write about what you want to write about and in the way that you want to write about it. I think one of the things that I've been lucky about is that I've been able to, to write about Wagner and not have uh, editors constantly wanting to know, well, you have to add in here about like how the U S is going to counter this. Like, how are we going to counter this? Um, and not having to, to write about that aspect of it uh allows me to i mean obviously i speak russian it's a, it's given me an ability to kind of 
meet with these guys and, and try and, and speak with these guys in a way that I think is difficult for people who like work at think tanks and things along those lines. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at the same time, uh, it, it is nice to have a paycheck that comes every two weeks and, and you don't get that uh, as an independent researcher. But, you know, you hope that the rewards over time, you know, are outweigh. And, and you know, I hope that uh, at, at some point I, I'll put myself in a position where I can just write books and have that be what I do. How have you been reporting um, this book, given that Russia has proven to be a pretty dangerous place for journalists right now? I mean, I mostly, I, I think I, I always had the plan of um, doing the field work in Africa and then um, kind of towards the end, uh, going to Russia and, and speaking with a lot of, uh, a lot of those guys. Uh, the, the war in Ukraine has made that uh, very, very difficult. The, the irony of, of, of Russia is that uh, for a very long time, Russia is a, was always a risky place to be a Russian journalist, but it, it's only very recently a, a place that's risky to be uh, a Western journalist. Um, and, 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 and really it's, it's only since the, the full-scale war in Ukraine that we've seen a real crackdown. We've seen journalists get kicked out and we've seen some journalists now kind of get held uh, essentially as, you know, hostages uh, for, and, you know, and accused of spying and, and, and these attempts to use them as, as bargaining chips. Um, that, that's very recent. Um, and so I think, you know, unfortunately, I would love to go, to Russia and meet with a bunch of these guys. But I think, unfortunately, I, it, it's too difficult to get a, uh, a journalist visa and it's too stupid to try and do what I would want to do on a tourist visa and, and get accused of spying inevitably. Um, and so, you know, I've been lucky enough to meet with these guys in Africa, uh, to, to speak with some, with people over uh you know various messenger apps and, and and do interviews and things along those lines um but it's uh it, it's a difficult environment for sure right now to try and get a good idea of of what's actually going on so where can people find your work if they want to read more uh well uh i guess you know i put all of my articles out on Twitter, but I often write with uh, foreign policy, uh, war on the rocks. I uh, should have an article coming out on meeting the Lord's Resistance Army with the Baffler, uh, kind of a literary magazine coming out soon. Uh, and then hopefully uh, next year, the, the book will be with uh, Bloomsbury. Amazing. Congratulations. Um, with that, uh, we're going to shift to our final segment where we each share something that we are following right now. Um, I'm happy to go first. I have recently gotten very deep into the TV show Silo, which is on Apple TV+. Plus. It's a dystopian show uh, uh, that documents the lives and mysteries of several thousand people who are living underground in an underground silo. It's very, it's very sci-fi. It's very dystopian. It's based on, um, uh, a work of science fiction that was published a while ago. Uh, and it's totally gripping and I would highly recommend it to anybody who wants to, uh, have really irresistible television. Natalia, what about you? What are you following right now? I am following something called the Hoffman Institute. I've had you know, one friend come and tell me about it. And now I have three friends that have been essentially, it is a week long personal growth retreat. And what they essentially do is that they target what we've developed unconsciously, or what we were conditioned, like in childhood as a way to think through how do we react to situations? 
how are we when we show up in our relationships, um, whether professional or personal. And the whole week, I mean, it sounds like a pretty tiring week, to be honest. People come out with these huge, thick binders of, you know, reflection and work that they've done. But I find it fascinating because all of it is rooted in, like, who are your parents? What are your parents like? How do they condition you as a child? Like, what are some of the unconscious things that you've developed? And how, as an adult, can you control, undo some of those things and rebuild yourself Um in your career, in your life, um, et cetera. So I don't know, it's something that not quite the vacation, but, you know, if people are interested in looking up Hoffman Institute, I think it's a week worth, well, everyone's time. I might try and go next year. Uh, John, what are you following? Hey, usually the, the, the problem with writing this book right now is like, I, I mostly, when I read, I mostly love to read just fiction and I get no opportunity to to do it right now. But I'm I'm halfway through uh this gigantic uh novel called The Recognitions by William Gaddis. Uh and it's fantastic. It's about seemingly nothing in particular, a guy who becomes an amazing amazing forger uh, of uh of art, but it was kind of the major uh, first post-war novel in, in the U.S. that kind of launched the, this whole movement uh, and, and was a precursor to to Pynchon and, and Gravity's Rainbow uh, and, and uh, Don DeLillo and, and all of these guys. And it's it's fun to kind of it's like 900 pages so i pick it up read a page and put it down it's taking me like months and months because i have to read a bunch of other stuff but uh, i'm still trying to just stay somewhat attached to the world of, of fiction right now that's great all now i have three or two good recommendations um of things to uh dive into um sometime soon um, thank you, John. And with that, thank you all for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Z Weinberg, Natalia at Natalia Tucker, and John at John Lechner1. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, please be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And with that, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.